Alright, welcome back to the third episode of Macro MTL. I'm your host, Cédric Galland. We are now in February 2022. Now, last month I told myself, surely we can't beat this, right? We can't have more stuff happening than January. And then February happened. What happened? So much is going on, and so much has happened. Things have concluded now. But, I mean, let's just get straight into it. And I- I'm I'm not going to push it any further here. We're going to go straight into the trucker convoy. Like, come on. This is, this is pretty much the uh, most prominent piece of news uh, that happened in Canada during February that... Uh, 19, I think it was 19 days of truckers uh, basically sieging Ottawa uh, for uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, they didn't want vaccine mandates. They didn't want vaccine passports for their job. That's how it started. Uh, now it's become um, something of its own. But uh, there's quite a few angles that you could take to talk about the trucker convoy, but uh, I decided to take uh, something closer to home, uh, closer to journalism, uh, because one of the main things that I saw during the trucker convoy was, in that whole debacle, was how journalists were being treated, or mistreated. And um, I know a few people, well, there's a trifecta uh, that's from the link Uh, The link is one of the student medias at Concordia. And uh, they went out there. They went to Ottawa. And they also covered uh, the Montreal protest that happened. Uh, So they went to Ottawa. uh, But it was, I mean, fourth day. Which, (laughs) in hindsight, the fourth day was like, Oh, wow, such a cute cute little protest with some enraged people. Yeah, no. This isn't it anymore. Well, technically... It is over. But I did do an interview with uh, I did do an interview with Zachary Fortier, which is one of the trifecta at the link. And well, he he had a few things to say about this. Uh, we had a lengthy conversation, but I you know uh, put in just the best parts. But it's still a pretty long clip here. Uh, but I'll let let it play out because uh, there's quite a lot of information to unpack in that clip. Uh, so here goes. And like, what's the difference between the protest that was in Montreal and Ottawa? The main differences between Ottawa and Montreal, besides the language, probably uh, the frustration I could feel. In Ottawa, they had already been there for four days. Now we're at day 19, or Lord knows when this comes out, how many days we'll be at. So there was already a little bit of fatigue. People were kind of delusional and just <laughs> trotting along. They weren't, whereas in Montreal, it was a one-time, one-hour event. They were there, and they were enraged. And so the the atmosphere was a lot harsher. The presence of counter-protesters definitely was riling some of the right-wingers up. And so it was just a really aggressive environment in this city. Yeah. And what about police? Policing. (laughs) You're making the face. (laughs) (laughs) The... um, the police in Ottawa, when we were there, have been, you know, were royally ineffective. 
They blocked off a bridge where they were letting some trucks pass. They were, so it was a very soft block. They were kind of patrolling around. They were laughing with people. They were chilling out, doing peace signs, all that kind of, you know, cool cop stuff. Now it's gotten a little bit better. I would like to say they've actually been cracking down more. But then again, you'll see some officers who are not doing that. And now they actually have every single Ottawa officer on the ground doing this, whereas before it was only a few. SPVM, par contre, is a different story and a story from hell. So the SPVM was baffling because there were two realities there on that day in Montreal. There were the uh, cops covering the there were cops covering the protest, and those protesters who were there against mandates, against vaccines, against everything in between. There were I would say nearly or around a thousand of them, hundreds and hundreds of people. And for them, they got a couple dozen uh, cops in yellow vests on bikes with nothing more than a walkie-talkie and a prayer following them around on bicycles as they went down Jerry. The counter-protesters, there were between 75 and 100 of them. It felt like there was a one-to-one ratio of counter-protester and riot cop. Not regular police, I mean full riot gear, shield on, uh, baton in hand, formation, ready to go in a line, blockading them off on all sides on a street. Not only has it gotten international recognition, it's also um, very much like coronavirus and having its own outbreaks in different countries. There have been protesters who are calling themselves Freedom Convoy in New Zealand, in Australia, in France, United Kingdom, United States, several other countries. What has started as one policy decision from Trudeau telling truckers they needed to get their vaccines has now become a movement that has been um, grabbed and twisted by the alt-right. It's very clear that this is a group that has been utilizing the frustration lots of people have been having in the past few years and using it to attack people. So what kind of precedent does that uh, create for uh, journalism, journalists being safe while covering? It's terrifying to be a journalist right now working in there and getting across this movement because you are, not only are you not welcome, you are seen as a public enemy. And that's why it's so dangerous. And it really sets the precedent that journalists work for the deep state and they work for you know, the underground lizard people, those anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have been, that have existed surrounding the press since its inception. You know, Adolf Hitler and, and Goebbels and all his people spoke of the Lügenpresse, which is lying press, and they spoke of you know the lying journalists who work to uh, discredit hardworking people who all happen to be on the right politically. What it sets really is that um, the free press is not welcome, and that fair coverage cannot be done because they will be met with an avalanche of harassment and threats of physical violence. And having. Having faced these people, do you think there's a way to meet them or have a, like, just 
engage in a dialogue with them in some way, shape, or form. What's so telling to me is that there is a march planned this Saturday, uh, which would be February 19th, in Quebec City. Another convoy meeting. Plus one go announced on Monday, the restrictions are gone. The vaccine passports will be discontinued. The masking is coming to an end very soon. All the safety measures are going to put in the next few weeks to few months. There's still a rally planned. This is about so much more than the pandemic. And when I was in Ottawa, many of the speakers, when they were talking about the injustices done to them, they weren't saying in the past two years. They said in the past decade. Has the coronavirus been going on for decades? This is so much larger than just a few rules about getting a shot in your arm. This is a mass mobilization effort by people who are going to be doing real harm to specific communities. This should be like a warning sign for everyone that this should not be something to, that should be taken lightly. So fortunately, he talked about the Quebec rally um, because this interview was in uh, was done earlier this week or last week. That is, um, the Quebec rally did not have the uh, momentum that the Ottawa rally had. Uh, I mean, before 5 p.m., everyone was gone. Uh, now, is this due to police force? Is this due to many things? I don't know. But at the time that this interview was done, the Ottawa rally or the Ottawa protest was still ongoing. Now, at this point, the Ottawa rally was completely disbanded. Um, now, there's that whole debate about police force. Uh, was it too much? Was it too little? Uh, everyone's divided. But one thing is certain is that the people of Ottawa, <laughs> they've had enough And they were quite happy to see all the truckers gone. Which is fair enough, because considering all the noise they were making, and, you know, it's they were taking a lot of play, a lot of space, you know? So, it's only fair that the Ottawa people are kind of like, oh, at last, you know, we can breathe. But, uh, obviously, this is gonna, this is gonna curtail a plethora of uh, dialogue, of uh, people being pissed at one another for the coming months. Uh, but one thing is certain is that this trucker convoy, the Freedom Convoy, it's raised something even scarier uh, to me, and that's the radicalization of Canada. You know, turns out there is a radicalization happening in Canada as well a polarization of people and it's definitely something that uh, the governments i mean everyone's got to work on right uh let's let's put an end to the trucker convoy i don't want to talk about it anymore it's it's like covid right trucker convoy for 19 days it was just about the trucker convoy in ottawa it's driving me crazy uh i don't want to talk about it anymore so We'll move straight on into a story that's a bit interesting. But first, I want to hear a bit of commentating. They got to Tassoka and Itigara Mermut, Aaron Ambrose, Aulet Jaymat, Canada, Aulet Larevo. 
Sarah Nurse, and now we have to take the team Canada. No one will soon be ending up the Tano. I see a thing on the Tulu Cortomina. Walk Marie Philip Pula, Demo Lirivotan, the nurse of Majener, Ikayoki. So, this, if you were wondering what it was, it is Inuktitut commentary from uh, Beijing Olympics. And it's the, uh, the Inuk duo uh, that were commentating this. Uh, they're called Pujut Kuzugak and David Ningeogan. They're from Rankin Inlet, Nunavut. And they're one of the, I think they are the first duo that are doing the commentating in Inuktitut. And that was the hockey game. Uh, the women's hockey team winning gold. And I mean, I just want to get, I just wanted to segue into the Olympics here because this is not a story about Inuktitut commentary. I just wanted to just throw that in there because it's interesting. It's fun. But what is interesting is that, you know, We've been hearing a lot about, you know, how the Olympics is same thing with the uh, the Summer Olympics uh, that were happening in Tokyo this summer. Uh, it, a lot of people are saying no one's watching it. No one's watching the Olympics. Um, same thing for Beijing, same thing for Tokyo, right? And uh, I mean, for Beijing, a lot of people are saying or a lot of people were saying that it's because of boycott. You know, they were boycotting the Beijing Olympics because of uh, China's government being China's government, right? Just absolute hell. You know, I wanted to check this out, right? I did a little Google search, you know, as you do. And I found an article that says, hear this, okay? The Olympics, I'll pull it up right now, actually. The headline is this, why Beijing 2022 is the most watched and digitally engaged Winter Olympics ever with social media stars driving the audience. Now, this is a loaded headline. And I was like, there is absolutely no way that this is true. There's no way. No one's watching it. I don't know anyone who's watching the Beijing Olympics right now. I was very dubious with this article. And then later down the line in this article, they're, they're throwing out stats here. Games attract almost 600 million Chinese viewers in first week with over 100 million Americans tuning in. Whoa. So you're telling me one third of America... Is watching the Beijing Olympics. Okay. Something's going on here. Right? So, on this page, right? On the page uh, that the article is on, it doesn't say which publication it's, it's published by. So, then you click on the homepage and you see South China Morning Post. Okay. So... The rabbit hole continues. Like you, you you might think, okay, South China Morning Post, it's related to the government. The government is publishing this article. You know, blah, blah. No. It's a Hong Kong publisher. It's from Hong Kong. 
And they're owned by Alibaba. And Alibaba, they're not owned by the government of China, surprisingly enough. Alibaba is very much under the scrutiny of the government of China. But the government of China have a hard time getting their hands into Alibaba. So, this kind of puts out the question, like, why are they doing this? Because then I cross-checked this information, and then I found out that, no, 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 <laughs> the Chinese, the Beijing Olympics, are not getting these numbers. Maybe the 600 million Chinese people may be in China, but NBC reported that they saw a 15%, a 50% loss in their Olympic watch rates. So the primetime telecasts, are averaging around 12 million viewers compared to 23.9 million viewers four years ago. I'm sorry, I there's a bit of a discrepancy between 12 million and 100 million. And that South China po Morning Post article was the first one that came up when I researched this. This is only a little story that I went through while researching this uh, this episode it's uh, it's definitely something but now let's get into uh, the more worrying story here and that's uh, Russia and Ukraine let's uh, let's hear Joe Biden say something here you know look we have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days. We believe that they will target Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. We're calling out Russia's plans loudly and repeatedly, not because we want a conflict, but because we're doing everything in our power to remove any reason that Russia may give to justify invading Ukraine and prevent them from moving. Make no mistake, if Russia pursues its plans, it will be responsible for a ca catastrophic and needless war of choice. The United States and our allies are prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory from any threat to our collective security as well. We also will not send troops in to fight in Ukraine, but we will continue to support the Ukrainian people. This past year, the United States provided a record amount of security assistance to Ukraine to bolster its defensive, $650 million from Javelin missiles to ammunition. We also previously provided $500 million in Ukraine and humanitarian aid and economic support for Ukraine. And earlier this week, we also announced an additional sovereign loan guarantee of up to $1 billion to strengthen Ukraine's economic resilience. But the bottom line is this. The United States and our allies and partners will support the Ukrainian people. We will hold Russia accountable for its actions. The West is united and resolved. We're ready to impose severe sanctions on Russia if it further invades Ukraine. But I say again, Russia can still choose diplomacy. So this uh, Joe Biden clip was on Friday and obviously, a lot has happened between that and now. Uh, reportedly, there's been shots fired at the border. Reportedly, there's been bombardments around the border as well. Um, no, this is very real. It's looking 
It's looking like it's going to happen. And, I mean, it's a very complex story here. You know, the headlines are showing, oh, Russia are going to invade Ukraine. But there's a big question here. Why do they want to invade Ukraine? Why is Russia doing this? Because from my, even me, from my perspective, back at the beginning of the month, when the story was picking up, I was kind of, I was low-key kind of laughing at Russia for even trying to do this masquerade. I was like, they're not going to do this. I was wrong. I was very wrong. Because there's a whole story behind this. And, you know, I'm going to try to explain this. It's a very complex one. Russian geopolitics. It's a whole mess. But let's try to get through the story together here. Okay? So, Russia is uh, has an interesting geography. Surprisingly, Russia has little access to water on the, on the Western Front. Uh, they have little access to the Atlantic Ocean. On the Pacific side, no problem at all, right? But their options are limited when it comes to the Atlantic. They've got the Baltic Sea, which is littered with uh, Finland, Sweden, Denmark. Like, they, they don't own the Baltic Sea at all. And they won't ever do... They won't ever own it. And their second option is the Black Sea. And the Black Sea goes is shared with Ukraine and Turkey. All these countries have one thing of, in common except Ukraine. And that's NATO. NATO. Ooh, the big NATO, right? They all are part of NATO. Which is, I mean, quickly, I'm going to explain what NATO is. It's a military organization. It's like an association of pretty much every country in Europe and Canada and the United States, and that's basically just to keep Russia at bay. And Ukraine were never part of NATO. Russia would never let that happen. So, recently, Ukraine have been like, you know, kind of privy, they've been kind of interested in the idea of being in NATO. And that's... You know, they're kind of making moves towards it. They're unifying with the EU and stuff like that. Russia is having none of it. None of it. And they do not want that to happen. And it's clear to see why. Because although they're kind of hiding it in kind of a nationalistic rhetoric where they think that, well, they say... That Ukraine is part of Russia, culturally, so it should become Russia. In reality, one, they don't want to lose Crimea, which they invaded back in the early 2010s, I think. And they do not want the United States and NATO to be so close to them. Like, they're, all, they're, they're basically going to get snuffed out if Ukraine becomes part of of NATO. Now, the thing is, this is eventually going to affect us. Uh, unfortunately, the, <laughs> you might think this is far away. You know, there's a notion between us. Well, no, uh, it's definitely going to be affecting us. Uh, first of all, maybe some Canadian forces 
will be sent to Ukraine. Who knows? Who knows what the government is going to do, Trudeau is going to do. Um, so far, it doesn't seem like it. They've been kind of throwing hundreds of millions of dollars in military support and, you know, saying good luck to Ukraine. Um, but the most, the most important thing that's going to happen from this war is economic instability. Because, well, Russia is, it's a big oil producer and one of the main natural gas producers for Europe. And if there is a war and Europe starts to, you know, do war things, warlike things with Russia, you can expect uh, natural gases to <laughs> skyrocket, you know? And natural gas is definitely a big part of, uh, even here, a uh, big part of the energy economy in Europe as well. So these, these, these like war consequences are definitely going to affect us in the long run. It's going to make it a bit in unstable economically. And obviously, I mean, it's going to be bad. And I mean, we'll see. Uh, I don't know if Biden is going to still say his argument about, oh, there's still a place at the diplomacy table. I mean, we'll see about that. Because it looks like Putin does not even want to be at the table. He doesn't care. So, that's the show. Um, hope you had a fun time. Because uh, I did. Um, we'll see if... Uh, we'll see if March is of similar uh, craziness than uh, this month. But, uh, to be fair, I hope not. So, I'll see you next month. Uh, and have a good time. Bye-bye.